From the Solo Project, this is Middle of Everywhere, a podcast that explores the importance of place and how, like never before, you can choose how you want to work, where you want to live. I think people will be able to choose where they live, where they locate themselves online, where they locate their businesses, and we'll just see a lot of differentiation and competition going on there. Like, you can now move to Ecuador and invest three Bitcoin and get citizenship. Maya Middlemiss is a storyteller from the future, obsessed with the future of everything, but mostly about personal autonomy and choice. An author, journalist, and consultant, she and her family left London, England to move to Valencia, Spain over a decade ago. Middlemiss is an expert in remote work and workers, work-life balance, cryptocurrency, and technology. She has published numerous books about remote work and founded the website Healthy Happy Homeworking to help new soloists and aid established soloists to better navigate remote life. Middle Miss is a sought-after consultant, not just for soloists, but for companies attempting to create the optimal conditions for remote workers as well as for hybrid offices. In other words, she's busy and getting busier. She has also set up an e-residency in Estonia and has extolled its virtues as an example of a country that has fully embraced digital life and its efficiencies, a country that has invited people from around the world to take advantage of what it has to offer. We recently spoke to Middle Miss about living in Spain while working for clients everywhere, what Spain gets wrong about remote work and what it can learn from its neighbor Portugal but the psychological barriers to remote work that everyone needs to overcome, the very real FOMO of remote workers in a hybrid office, and how the ripple effects of the rise of the soloist will impact, well, everything. Tell me a bit about your journey and a remote work champion. Amongst other things, you are quite a, you're, you're all over the place, really. <laughs> you have a lot of interest. Yeah. But going from England, you know, now you're in you're in southeastern Spain. What was that journey like? Well, that was a journey facilitated by working remotely. Basically, I was running a small market research agency for several years based just outside of London. It started in the year 2000 with the arrival of my millennium baby and not wanting to go back to a central workplace and put her in childcare. So I started off setting up a new business partnership from home probably with a view at some point to if it was a success hiring an office at some point, but we just never got around to that. And after many years, I was still working at home. So when I had the chance, I moved And, and what was that business? That was um, research was field work. Business? So interestingly, it was all about okay. getting people to show up at research events at the right time. And we ended up working entirely as a home-based team. In the end, we had people in three countries and it was actually, it was an early experience in the resiliency of a distributed team because occasionally when you're running live events, things go wrong with transport or weather emergencies and so on. Whereas we had this team that there was always somebody who could get online, get in touch with the venue and sort things out. And then you decided to move. Yeah, we wanted to move out of London. I mean, I'd lived on the outskirts of London for a long time. I had two young daughters at that point. And I found that I was going up to London less and less. Really, the business environment was shifting to the point where more and more initial business contact was done online. I was attending fewer and fewer face-to-face meetings, and we just decided we were going to move out, basically. We looked at moving out sort of into the home counties. We looked at moving out to Wales, moving up north to my husband's family. In the end, I think the weather had a lot to do with it. We ended up moving to Spain instead. It was 
really nothing in it in the sense that if we'd been in Northumbria, we'd probably have been the same distance in time from an emergency meeting in central London as we were on the Spanish coast. And at that time, flights were really cheap, considerably cheaper than they are than they were a couple of years ago. I don't know what the new normal is going to be on that yet, because there's still so few of them. But mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. having said that, other aspects have got easier since that time as well, that the technology is obviously so much better. And that move was when? That was at the very end of 2008. I don't recommend moving from one side of Europe to the other in the middle of winter, if anyone's planning on doing it. But it was just how it worked out. It was also at the very height of the financial crisis as well. So lots of things could have been better about the pound euro ratio and things like that. But we figured out that if this is our trial year or or six months initially, we rented both ends. We thought we'll give it a go and just follow through on our plans. And that was over a decade ago and we're still here. So I guess it worked out. Now, you've done a lot of writing about many Mm. things, but about remote work and about home life balance. And when did that start? Did that start before you left England or did that start when you got to Spain? Um, It was really once I got to Spain, I was still running the agency, but I started to focus more on my writing. It was partly putting down roots in a new place. I ended up writing a column for the local newspaper. That was about social media and technology for the local English speaking news. So it really meant teaching people how to use Facebook to keep in touch with their grandchildren and things like that. So I was starting to write. I, I wrote a book about research recruitment And then not long after that, I decided I wanted to transition into full-time freelance writing and consulting because I realized that was the bit I enjoyed most about what I was doing. And did you start writing about remote work because you saw people struggling with it or because you just figured, I think I may have figured parts of this out? People weren't really struggling with it. When I started freelancing full-time in 2017, it was still... The momentum was gaining, definitely, but it was still a fairly niche thing that people mainly did because they wanted to, sometimes because they really wanted to and fought very hard to lobby for permission to do so from their employers. I started working with a client, an agency called Virtual Not Distant in London, and they do training and consulting with remote teams. Back in those days, it was about teams that were planning a transition or a trial of remote work as a change management process. So I was doing workshops with them and also lots of content creation. I still podcast with them regularly. It's a really nice little organization, even though obviously the context of the work has changed radically. And I suppose it was one of those things that I was trying to figure out where my experience and knowledge could best add value as a freelancer and it was around then it started to dawn on me that actually knowing how to build and run a remote team was a subject in its own right up to then it had just been the context of what I was figuring out in order to do another kind of business but at that time people were asking me and I realized I could help them with things that I'd figured out along the way and help them shortcut that learning curve and get things right Last time we spoke, you talked about how working from home used to be a privilege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And it's not anymore. So, I mean, we talk about this whole pandemic as accelerating trends. I mean, this is something that was happening already. Yes. It really was. It was a transformational time. Yes, for so many things. I mean, I was coming up at the end of 2019, I was coming up to my 20 year anniversary of working from home. And I was planning to celebrate that with a new book about how to do it and what was brilliant about it and why people should strive for this lifestyle and fight for it. Obviously, the the trend of adoption was 
going in the right direction. There were lots of organizations increasingly open to people working from home, working remotely from wherever. The technology for it was converging as well, because just simply having the bandwidth for us to be recording in different countries, like we're doing now to have meetings with clients and so on. And the fact that technology for that was largely distributed in the cloud rather than residing in central servers for most things, if not communication is catching that up now. So the time was, you know, if we did have to have this pandemic, I think we timed it really well. I dread to think if even a couple of years earlier, the situation could have been very different. So I was all poised with the new book plan for healthy, happy homeworking and bringing that to the world, my 20 years of expertise, because I had nothing else to learn about working from home. And then, of course, the world changed overnight. And suddenly, everybody was working from home, often in terribly unhelpful, unplanned circumstances. You know, all the work I'd done with Virtual Not Distant, with teams helping them actually plan and pilot and evaluate working from home on a, a trial basis, that was all out the window and everybody was just told to grab a laptop, go home and get online, we'll figure it out later. And so it was really paradoxical and weird because suddenly everybody was having a taste of working from home, something I'd been championing and advocating for years. But for a lot of them, it was a terrible experience because they really didn't have the support they needed. They didn't have the space to do it in. They didn't have managers who knew what they were doing. They didn't have workflows that were designed around not being in the same place with their colleagues. So it's been a fascinating time, put it that way. I think I saw that they are starting companies, certain companies are starting to hire someone as sort of the remote operations Mm. manager in a role that is separate from the general operations people. It's something that's definitely we're starting to see emerging in corporations now, the idea of a head of remote as a really senior C-suite kind of position. I think it's interesting because I've looked at a few of these, mainly they're just in the form of advertisements at the moment for that person. And Mm. It seems to me that as a definition of a role, it's still bedding down whether that person's going to be more operationally involved or more on the policy side and internal advocacy. But I think that just reflects that this is really a moving target. I think it's a great direction of travel that places are starting to recognize we need somebody at the top who gets this stuff and is going to speak up for it and is going to make it work for us. So a lot of people have profited from the situation we're in, big tech Mm. gets we talk about their share increase, but I can imagine that something like your happy, healthy homeworking is actually doing well or better maybe than you would have thought it would have done a few years ago. Yes. And we have a nice little community coming together. I've written two books. There's also a training course to help people find the right remote job for people who are maybe seeking to carry on working from home, but but their current employer wants them back in the office and so on. So What I'm trying to do is listen to the community and create resources that they're asking for. I'm doing some individual coaching as well with people. Most of the people I'm coaching are people who are job seeking or seeking to redefine their role because they've something about working from home has clearly stuck with them. They want to keep that, but they don't want to do it in exactly the same way they have for the last 18 months. We'll be right back. podcast is called Middle of Everywhere, and it just means that our sense of place has changed completely and is not even relevant anymore in many instances. One of my earlier guests said, you know, this is almost like the reverse industrial revolution. The industrial revolution, you had workers 
flocking to the cities that had built up around factories. And now you have the exact opposite happening. Yeah. Who are the people in your community in the happy, healthy, healthy, happy homeworking? I really community? must buy the other domain at some point because you, you know I'm going to make that mistake. It doesn't all the really time. matter. Both words are of equal importance. <laughs> I think it's important to say you can't have health without happiness and vice versa. The people I'm communicating with and working with are knowledge workers, mainly in Europe and the US and the UK, but from a wide range of disciplines and a mixture of entrepreneurs who've always traditionally worked from home freelancers, but increasingly now employees, because they're the ones caught up with the lack of choice and autonomy in this situation often, and the ones being told where they're going to work from in the future. And they're the ones who were probably most used to having that physical space that you were talking about. They are the ones who traveled to a central location, to a workplace that was designed with certain values and aesthetics and ideals in mind. And now that's been taken away. And so we have to start focusing on the digital place, what that looks like, what that feels like, what going to work means anymore. Because it's different. If you work for yourself, then work is something you do. You've always known that and it's a case of your reward and your effort are directly proportionate and so on but if you work for someone else often the hard boundary of going to a workplace has had a lot of significance attached to it and when you take that away it's much harder for people to know kind of what they're doing and where so I think this is going to be an interesting area for the technology I think the idea of digital workplaces and creating a sense of presence in events going beyond two dimensions starting to use the full spectrum of technology that we have in terms of increasing bandwidth where we have ubiquitous fiber and 5G coming. How can we do a better job of overcoming proximity bias and creating a real sense of working together and being together in a digital space, even if we're in very different physical locations? I think proximity bias is an interesting concept Mm. because there are people who worry that if they're working in a team and if they are away too far away from the center of gravity, that they will lose out yeah. and that they will fall by the wayside. I think it's a very valid concern and it's one that it's very important we talk about. An awful lot of workplaces are talking about we're going to be hybrid, we're going to have a hybrid workforce. Often they're not really defining what they mean by that and it can mean a number of different things. What it quite often means is some people come to the office all the time and some people never or rarely do because they're more geographically dispersed or they have more reason not to expose themselves to other people for whatever reason. So there is a real issue that those people can be subject to indirect discrimination through cognitive biases that everybody has, including the most fair-minded manager in the world. To overcome unconscious bias, you have to be aware of it and you have to directly act to counter it. A lot of people have had to confront that around issues of race, sexuality, and all sorts of things in their lives. Now they need to think about the people that they don't see every day, the people who are likely to be at a distance. And they also need to recognize that there will be an intersectionality there, which can lead to things that are already protected in discrimination law. For example, if women are less likely to come back to the workplace physically, then if there are going to be fewer opportunities for promotion and recognition and advancement, then people are going to find themselves in court over that. So it's it's really important that employers start to recognize that they need to directly overcome these issues and make themselves very deliberately and consciously aware of creating equity for people who aren't directly in front of them. And for the people working at a distance, they need to be aware of this too and start to think consciously, how do I raise my profile? 
How do I make sure I over-communicate? How do I make sure I show up? Things like having your profiles populated, personal branding. It sounds a bit icky and a lot of employees will say, well, that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm not an entrepreneur or a brand. But actually within your team, you need to kind of work that and really make sure that you're showing up professionally, being in the conversations, knowing what's going on, communicating what you're doing so that nobody ever thinks, are they? Are we doing anything? <laughs> you know, you don't ever want your manager thinking, is this person working? So there can be, in some workforces, it's quite common to develop a protocol of saying what you're going to do, then narrating while you do it, and saying what you've done at the end of the day, really working out loud. Different cultures will emerge, I think, over time. But I think it's, there is a definite risk of indirect discrimination and unconscious bias creeping in. The only way we're going to get around that is by being really transparent about it talking about it and getting it out there. So you've mentioned two barriers so far that have stopped people from maybe going remote or, or worry about it. One is technology, mm -hmm. which we're more and more overcoming for sure, but it's still there. Two is the operational side of it. And I guess the third, and you've written about that extensively too, is about your own boundaries mm, Yeah, when you are a remote worker. It's a tricky one, the whole issue of boundaries, because... If we take away the biggest physical boundary, that's that's basically what happens when you move work into the place you live. You no longer have that hard edge of going from one location to another. And even the process of going from one to another, the idea of the commute, you know, a lot of people, that's the first thing they're happy to ditch is waiting for that train first thing in the morning. But that commute can provide lots of benefits, including a kind of psychological barrier and a break and decompression time, as well as exercise. You know, you need to replace that if you're suddenly, that was where most of your physical activity came from. So boundaries can be really challenging. And it's not just about the physical space, even if you're lucky enough to have a dedicated workspace in your home, which is the ideal, obviously, but certainly not something that everybody had in 2020 when they had to start doing it. There are other issues of boundaries, like the technology you use. If you're using a personal laptop or you have email on your phone or company messaging and so on, how do you make sure that you manage that? How do you keep space back in your head, in your life, so that you can end up clearing that down at the end of the day? It might be a case of logging out of your work messaging or your work email, for example. If you're going to use that same mobile device for the rest of your family time in the evening sometimes it can simply be those unfinished things that are in your mind because the trouble with knowledge work is that we often don't have clear edges on it anyway we really mm -hmm. if we were all making things in a factory we'd get to the end and finish our quota of putting screws into holes or whatever we're doing and then we know we're done and we can just forget it whereas most of us in anything creative or ongoing, you still got that with you in your head when you finish at the end of the day. And you haven't got those other cues that everybody else is leaving the building around now, so I must be done. So a lot of the time, even if you can leave your work in another room and close the laptop lid, you might well take it with you. So having kind of task and role boundaries as well, being able to decompress at the end of the day, make your list of things you're going to do the next day, capture all those loose ends, and then, right, that's it. I'm now off duty and the rest of the evening is my own. You mentioned weather before and <laughs> climate and how that is a big, especially for Northern Europeans. You know, Spain has always been, or anywhere in the southern part of the continent, has always been a retirement destination for many people. I imagine that is changing now too. I mean, has the expat community in Valencia, where you live, has it changed at all um, in the last few years? Yeah, I think it's definitely evolving. We used to live 
in a smaller town in the Valencian community in the Costa Blanca, which was there, I think, even more so than the city, there's been a real demographic shift from people just coming to retire. I think before we came out, when we were looking around at people, there were lots of people coming over to open a business and to set up a bar or a restaurant or something like that. The financial crisis pretty much put an end to other than the most naive and reckless um, people coming over to do that. <laughs> and anybody who says, I want to come to Spain and open a business would get laughed out of every expat forum because there aren't really jobs here. There aren't that many opportunities. But people bringing their work with them, that's a whole new thing. That's really exciting and interesting. And it's something that we're going to see continuing to grow, I think. Spain needs to catch up with some other European countries and other destinations in terms of remote work visas and making it easy and straightforward to do that. Well, just Portugal. Portugal is a great example. Yes, it's much, much easier. If somebody was coming over here with a remote job, it's much easier to go to Portugal at the moment. I think. I mean, do they have a visa for remote workers? Yeah, they just basically make it easier for you to come and bring your work and still be taxed out of the country or in your your home country, even when you're living there long term. Now, it's not something I'm up on 100% and wouldn't want to be advising anybody on because it's very nation specialist, but it's something that is coming up a lot for the British community, obviously, because we had our European citizenship summarily stripped away from us earlier this year. So prior to that, obviously, it was much easier to just come and live and work and be self-employed and contribute and be a taxpayer and so on. Whereas I think to get a self-employed visa in Spain now, if you're British or American, is really difficult. You've got to kind of prove a strong business case and I think ultimately prove that your long-term plans are to employ Spanish people in order to get that visa. So Spain is not making it easy for people to bring remote work. But that said, there are different autonomous communities within Spain with slightly different climates, business climates, that is. Some of them are doing a much better job than others of encouraging remote work and digital nomads, like in the Canary Islands, for example. There's some amazing projects there. They're really working hard to bring people in and, and also get them to just come and stay and spend a bit of time remote work can be so good for the destination populations because people bring currency from other parts of the world. What's not to like? They're going to come spend that in the local economy. Hospitality and travel have been devastated by this pandemic. So I'm really surprised that more countries aren't bending over backwards to attract remote workers bringing hard currency from other parts of the world. It seems to me like the obvious thing to do. We'll be right back. So that segues nicely into your Estonian mm-hmm. e residency, yeah. which you've written about quite a bit on Medium. We'll have links to all of Maya's writing on the website. Describe the Estonian program to people who don't know about sure. it and the benefits of it, what you get out of it, and what Estonia gets out of it. Estonia, well, it's a it's a tiny little country in the north of Europe, which I would definitely have had trouble pointing out on a map a few years ago. But I was in the position where I was freelancing as a self-employed person in Spain, but in order to secure a particular contract, I needed a limited company in order to contract with a much bigger organization. Now, running a limited company in Spain is excruciatingly difficult, expensive, complicated, and slow. 
and I've done it before. And I knew I wouldn't simply wouldn't have got this bit of business if I'd had to wait for the time it would have taken to set up a Spanish limited company. So that was out of the question. And I was thought about setting up a UK company because I'm still a British citizen. But then we had this looming political thing on the horizon that didn't seem wise. And then I came across Estonia in terms of its e-residency program, which at the time, this was 2018, was fairly new. Basically, Estonia is a very digitally oriented country. You can do practically every bit of civil administration in Estonia online through a digital identity card and through exchanging cryptographic signatures. It's amazing. I think somebody told me you have to show up in Estonia to get married and to get buried. Everything else you can do digitally, (laughs) whether you're getting a pension or selling a car or anything else, you can do it through digital IDs. You have to show up to actually say I do and to be put in the ground at the end of it all, but everything else is digital. So they have really punched above their weight as a tiny country. They've decided to capitalize on this as their thing, and they've invested in it. There's an amazing startup culture. They're very, very tech first, and everything is done through this central database. And I was writing a lot about blockchain technology and things at the time, and so it was closely related to that. And I'd come across Estonia from that point of view, because it's, it's very similar to blockchain, the kind of digital identity and cryptographic signatures. So then I came across their e-residency scheme through which anybody in the world can become an e-citizen of Estonia and set up a business in Estonia very, very quickly and easily. So that's what I did, basically. It took a few weeks to apply for the digital identity card, which is the thing that gives me access to that citizenship. You have to apply to the Estonian Immigration and Border Police. You have to have a reason for doing so. But I think being broadly in support of e-residency as a thing is still regarded as enough as a reason. And once you've got that, you can set up a business. It took me about 24 hours to create the business, which I still use as a sole A legal entity. A legal entity, which isn't me. It means a contract is between that business and my client. And I can keep my affairs in Spain then very straightforward and consult to that business in Estonia because my clients are all over the world. Spain's not seeing my business as having a corporate presence here. Estonia is totally brilliantly geared up for dealing with different languages, different currencies. There are turnkey business services you can subscribe to that do all of that for a fraction of what it would cost in Spain. They provide me with this portal where I can raise invoices in dozens of different countries. I can just add a new currency at a click of a button. It's really incredibly straightforward and lovely, helpful people who all speak impeccable English. And it's just really, really easy. And I can do everything online, including the banking and everything else. Are there any other places doing this? Not in quite the same way, I think. There are definitely countries looking at it. I've heard Malta talking about it. I don't think there's any other country that has every aspect of life digitized in quite the same way as a starting point as Estonia does. So I think they'd be starting from a different place. There are some aspects of it that are almost seem clunky and old-fashioned because they've had it for so long. Like There's no really good mobile app for digital identity and things. Everything's done with this USB card holder and things like that. So I think if other countries were doing it, they'd kind of leapfrog, you know, in right. the same way that we've seen technology explode around the world so unevenly. So I think it's something that's coming. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's just something we're going to see really exploding over the next few years is different models of doing this and they won't all look like Estonia exactly. There'll be so many different ways people approach kind of leveraging citizenship and governance as a service. I think people will be able to choose where they live, where they locate themselves online, where they locate their businesses, and we'll just see 
a lot of differentiation and competition going on there. Like you can now move to Ecuador and invest three Bitcoin and get citizenship. You can move to various Caribbean islands and invest US dollars in properties and get citizenship where you can get the golden visa in Europe. I think it's half a million euros you need to spend on property or something. Then you can basically do anything you like in Europe. You can work or travel or whatever. Unlike those of us on residence permits who are quite constrained, you know, I can't move out of Spain for more than a year or something, or I'll lose my right to live here and so on. So there's so many different models we're going to see as people realize the benefits of completely disconnecting the place you live from the place you work, the place you locate your business. Those could all be different places. And we're going to see different models happening. Barbados were very quick to do a remote work visa. And I think that's quite expensive. You have to buy the visa, but then once you've got that, you can live anywhere on the island. And obviously you're probably bringing an income from outside the island. Portugal, as we've discussed, is leading the way in Europe. Croatia too, I believe. So none of these have gone down the actual e-citizenship in quite the same way as Estonia. But I really wouldn't be surprised if similar things would start to emerge and it won't be long. Well, I've been speaking to a lot of people, especially in the United States, cities, second tier, third tier cities, regions that are offering incentives to remote workers to move there. Uh, which is a, yeah. which is another way of doing things, and they they also help out in infrastructure and in terms of that ecosystem and welcoming you in yeah. and and getting you set up. It's happening in Europe too. It's happening in the UK. I think often these for cities to compete and attract people to go and live there. In the past, they always had to offer them jobs, reasons to come there where you could earn a living, and often that meant that they had to offer planning incentives to big companies to open headquarters there or branches and so on, if they can take that money that they used in planning incentives and just divide it up and give it to people as a stipend instead or towards a property or accommodation and so on and say, look, you can come and live here. You can have a much better lifestyle for your income. You bring your income from London or San Francisco or wherever and live in one of these smaller cities. You can enjoy a different pace of life. You can have a much bigger home which has adequate accommodations for working from home as well, which you might never be able to afford in your hotspot location. And then you can enjoy a better quality of life. These places are offering good schools, good community facilities. They're offering real communities where people can put down roots and see their kids grow up, take part in outdoor hobbies and sports and lifestyles and actually be part of that community as well. It's not all about working from home. It might be about co-workings or working from a local coffee shop and so on. Because again, these cities, it doesn't matter whether they're big global cities or second, third tier cities, they've all had their retail and hospitality devastated by this thing. So these are, Mm -hmm. if they can bring people in who've got money, who are going to come and live there and actually be part of that community, not hurry down the high street to get to the metro station to get to a central location, but actually walk down that high street slowly and maybe get a coffee, maybe use the local schools and sports center and so on. All of that has a real potential to change the way we live. And we're seeing it in Europe as well, that for a long time, there's been a massive rural depopulation in Spain. You know, there are whole villages where there's nobody under 70 and people don't know what to do with that. And they've been offering things like giving away houses for one euro or something, provided you invest in doing up the property and so on. Whereas now I think people are starting to think, well, what if we just put in really good broadband? Mm -hmm. then we can start to... That seems to be the base that you would need. I mean, the free house is great, but if there's no broadband... You need that infrastructure to work. And I think that what we're going to see is different factors coming into play when it comes to choosing where to live or choosing what makes 
an attractive property or an attractive neighborhood. It's not going to be about being half an hour from the airport. It's going to be about 5G or having that infrastructure that makes it easy for people to get their work done along with other aspects of quality of life. So it's so much in a state of flux at the moment. This has got so many second, third, fourth, fifth order effects that we haven't really begun to see what it's going to look like. But all I know is that it's going to be a while before it settles down into anything we could recognize as a a new normality. Yeah, well, last time we spoke, you talked about how we're just starting to understand the ripple effects of these changes of this huge group of people who are working from home. And then you have large, multi-global companies like Deloitte Mm -hmm. saying, you can all work from home from now on. So as someone who describes herself as a storyteller from the future, what are some of those ripples going to be in four places? I mean, I think about those little towns in Italy that are literally giving away these gorgeous, but decrepit, neglected properties, do people start going back to them? Well, hopefully they do. And maybe there will be people going home. I think there's a certain amount of nostalgia generated by the whole idea that people were locked down, often in places that they'd migrated to for work and so on. And then particularly in Europe, I know there are people who are keen to get back to their extended family, people they haven't seen for a long time. And maybe now they could actually go and live and work there and take their work with them. So that will be a factor. I'd like to think that this will be a smooth, gradual and bloodless phenomenon, but doubtless there will be casualties along the way because cities have to change. The way that rents and things like that had got out of hand in the hotspots of global cities was desperately due for a correction anyway. It's simply unsustainable what you pay for an apartment in Dublin or New York. These things needed to change Mm -hmm. and they would have changed one way or another. What's going to happen now is that people will take that New York salary and live out somewhere a couple of hours away. We'll start to see it with younger people first and foremost who are more likely to be renting. They're going to be the ones who can come to an end of a lease and think, well, actually, I want to go on working from home. I don't want to do it in this cramped apartment. How about I move out to the suburbs and have a garden and a spare room and a guest room and things like that. So they'll go first. Then actual freeholders will be slower because the change cycle is slower. And at the same time, we'll start to see commercial real estate come to the end of leases as well on buildings that have been empty for a couple of years or two thirds empty. And they'll start to reprofile what those are for. Now, sadly, we're going to see Lots of problems for the ancillary businesses, the coffee shops, the dry cleaners, the businesses that exist to support that. Well, you know, one of my previous guests, he just said, yeah, the location of that coffee shop is bad, but that coffee shop is going to move. Right, we still want Chances coffee. are that coffee shop is going, exactly, and it, it may go to one of those far-flung suburbs yep. where there wasn't a town center before, but now people who are moving there are going to demand a town center and that's where the coffee shop is going to be or it's going to be next to a train station for those hybrid workers who have to go in maybe once or twice a week so we're not going to see things won't be ruined in that sense it's just dispersed and these are entrepreneurs after all these small businesses they've been through the economic downturn a decade ago people will figure out ways to make change Even the poor big city hedge funds with all their commercial real estate will come through it one way or another. And those buildings will get repurposed as well. Some of our city centres now have amazing loft apartments on riversides and so on, which used to be industrial manufacturing, which then got repurposed for residential. I'm sure the same thing will happen with lots of things that are currently office accommodation. People will still want to live in cities and they might be able to afford to actually live there instead of just dashing in and out. So, you know, it's not like cities are going to disappear. They'll simply just even out a little bit more over time and we'll have maybe... 
not smaller cities, but slightly less sort of divided and condensed city centres, more people in the suburbs, more fluidity between them, more mobility, more micro-mobility, more public transport. I think there are so many different technological factors converging here. But for organisations, certainly, they're going to want the resilience of a distributed workforce that's either remote or remote ready or fully hybrid, because we know this thing isn't going away. Every day brings us more depressing news about variants and people talking about the next pandemic. We're also seeing all these dreadful global climate emergency events, which are going to affect the way we travel, the way we live. Will we, Mm -hmm. some areas of the planet, become completely uninhabitable before long? So I think from an organizational point of view, distributed teams are the future as well. Simply maybe being a well, bit we're more We're all mobile. digital nomads We now. are. and We're all digital nomads We now. need to kind of recognize that we probably were before anyway. We just happened to all go and be digital nomads sitting next to each other in cubicles for some reason. We still did all our work online, or 99% of it. Um, we sometimes had meetings with other people. But I know lots of knowledge workers who basically could have been remote for a decade. They simply weren't by force. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people are realizing that when this happened and they were forced into it, they realized, well, actually, I can do it. And so can everyone else. Um, Some bits, we might still want to go and meet up with other people. We might want to have certain kinds of communication or collaboration face to face. Other things we might want to repurpose as just audio conversations. We might enjoy the synergy of a big public trade event one day. At the moment, the thought of, Thousands of people cramming into a conference center or something might fill us with horror, but there are people who desperately miss that. Those events have been replicated as online events and often not been very satisfactory. But as the technology for that improves, even if we go back to the face-to-face events, I'm sure there will always be a digital element because it means so many more people can be involved in different ways. And we're not going to give that up or pretend it didn't happen. So the world is definitely changed forever. Maya Middlemas is the most international woman of mystery I've spoken to in a long while, if ever. And yet her business is really about finding a work-life balance when working from home. For more information about Middlemas and Healthy Happy Homeworking, visit HealthyHappyHomeworking.com. Middle of Everywhere is a production of The Solo Project, LLC. This episode was produced by Patrick Mitchell. My name is Arjun Bassett. For more information about us, visit TheSoloProject.com and follow us on social media at The Solo Proj.